0: Father as we have just sung we pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ this is your work it is a work that you have committed yourself to for your own glory for the proclamation of your grace in Christ for the salvation of your people for the sanctification of those you've called as we've said many times out of darkness into light may you now as we Open up your word as we prepare to hear these testimonies in the waters of baptism. Would you show us Christ? Would you show us his beauty? Would you draw out of us the affections due to him, rightly due to him? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, as you know, we are going to have the privilege of hearing a couple of testimonies of in the waters of baptism. And we'll actually, because of a scheduling thing, be able to hear another one in a couple of weeks as well, maybe a couple more. Uh, but we always rejoice to hear the work of God's grace in the lives of his people, his calling them to himself through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, We delight to do that this morning. And to prepare our hearts for that, we're going to look at a few verses in the book of Colossians. So if you'd make your way there to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through 14. Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. When we come to a baptism and when we hear the testimonies of those who are going to give them this morning or any believer, Uh, We are celebrating the work of God in Christ and so baptisms is an ordinance given by Christ to his church in which we declare both his person and his work and we declare each individual does their embrace of that work of Christ and his person and all the fullness of the glory of God is revealed in scripture. And so that is wonderfully demonstrated for us here in uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. As Paul says, declares to us in the spirit of a prayer, and in the context, actually, of a prayer, of the thanksgiving of the heart of God's people to the Father for what he has done in Christ. Namely, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So to give us some context before we come into these verses, we'll look specifically at verses 12 through 14. Uh, let's begin in verse 9 and read all the way down to verse 14. Verse 14. Uh, Which is the entirety of his prayer He begins in verse 9 For this reason since the day we heard of it We have not ceased to pray for you And to ask that you may be filled With the knowledge of his will And all spiritual wisdom and understanding So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord To please him in all respects Bearing fruit in every good work And increasing in the knowledge of God Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Well, as we look at this briefly, we're going to look at it under two broad headings, namely the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son that is laid before us in this prayer. Let's note first, then, the sovereign grace of the Father, the glory of the Father in His sovereign grace, looking at verse 12. He says, we are giving thanks to the Father. We are giving thanks to the Father, and we are giving thanks to the Father, first, let's note, for His gracious purpose, His gracious purpose, which is an eternal purpose, which is his purpose, which is his determination to save a people from the ravages of sin. And so you notice that it is to the Father. That might strike some people as odd. Uh, We don't often think of salvation and gratitude always as directed to the Father. Some people even have the idea of salvation being of the, the love of the Savior, but really when we think of the Father and we think of God the Father, we have more of an austere figure, more distant figure, one whose emphasis seems to be on judgment rather than on salvation. But when we come to Christ, we come to one who is gentle and one who is full of mercy that of course shows a distortion of our understanding not only of scripture for those who might be led to think that way or tend to think that way but also of the very nature of salvation gratitude here is to the father because salvation originates in him the father is the one who is the originator of salvation and the deliverance of his people from the very beginning of the promise in genesis 3:15 that he would rescue out of a fallen creation some for his own glory It was the father who called the nation of Israel to himself and all of the patriarchs before him, that they might walk, know and walk in his covenant. It is the father who always acts in accord and consistent with the son and with the spirit. And so when the father acts to save, it is the son who accomplishes the will of the father and the spirit who applies it. So salvation is always the work of the God as he's revealed father, son and spirit. But here we give thanks to the Father, and you see this consistently throughout Scripture because salvation is the plan of the Father. It is the purpose of the Father. It was the Father's will that he would send the Son. It was the Father's will that he would save some who were ravished by the devastation of sin. You're familiar with These words of Paul in the book of Ephesians. Let me just read them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself through the kind intention of his will. Salvation is indeed the work of the Father. It is his purpose. It was the Father's idea. It was the Father's plan. It was the Father who sent the Son. It is to the Father that we are reconciled through the Son in Christ. And so look what he says about this. We give thanks to the Father because he has done what? He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has made us who were otherwise dead. We'll consider that. He has made us able to share in this inheritance of his own son, his own relationship with his son. He has made us worthy. Some of you may have older translations that say something like he has made us meet. It's the same idea. He has made us worthy. The idea is to, to cause someone to be worthy of something, to be able to take hold of something, to have access or entrance into something, some place. And here it is his eternal purpose that we who are called would be Qualified and able made meat to share in an inheritance, an inheritance of the saints in light What is this inheritance? Well, Paul is referring here in his background, or has in in his mind in the background The the Old Testament reality of the promise to God's people, namely that they would be called to an Inheritance Certainly in Old Testament Israel, under the Old Covenant, they were called to inherit the land. There are still future promises to his people, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There is still a a time where that will come about. But at the heart of this promise was not merely a land, it was not merely a place, it was a spiritual reality. As we looked at last week in the New Covenant, it was to be called to a place and a state of... Salvation, of the forgiveness of sin, of walking with the law of God in our heart, of walking and delighting in His glory. That is at the essence of this inheritance. And so there is a, a future aspect to it, but there is a present reality. There is a spiritual reality. As He said in Ephesians, it is to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So he's drawing here on the Old Testament promises that is in the background, but declaring here the present beginning of the fulfillment of what is the ultimate promise, namely that he would grant to a people the certainty and a final sacrifice to enter into this inheritance, to know the grace of his salvation. And he describes this inheritance as in the light, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What does he mean by that? Well, some take the idea here, in light, to go either with the saints, so it could be the saints in light, or the inheritance Or in light is describing the inheritance. It, it doesn't make a great difference in an ultimate sense, but he's referring here most certainly or most likely to the light as a description of the inheritance. The inheritance, what he has called his people to, is described as light. It's described as light. Now, if you have any familiarity with Christianity, you're, you're familiar with light as a description of Christ. He is the light of the world. It speaks of the nature of his ministry. It speaks of the nature of God. It says in him is light and there is no darkness of all at all. It speaks of the nature of his people who are the light of the world. In Ephesians, it speaks of the nature of the salvation of his people, the character of them. They were called in light and that is the holiness and righteousness of the truth. To a devout life committed to God, What does light mean? Well, essentially, light can be summed up in this way. It speaks of truth as opposed to error. Darkness is marked by lies. Light is marked by the truth. It speaks of the holy character of God. Again, one of the most profound and, for me personally, uh, wonderful statements in Scripture is that in First John of First 1 John 1:5, 1, where he says, "God is light." There is no darkness in him at all. There is no flaw, there is no weakness, there is no error, there is no lie, there is no sin, there is no discrepancy of perfection within the being and the nature of God. And therefore the kingdom and the inheritance in which he would draw those to himself must be marked by the same. And so here he has qualified those he has brought into this inheritance of light to be fit for this kingdom, to be fit for this glory, to be fit for this beauty, to be fit in holiness. Now, how would he accomplish this? And this is what he moves on to. How would he accomplish this? How, how is he able to bring us into this inheritance? Well, because the gracious plan of the Father was to go on a rescue mission. To go on a mission of salvation. To go on a mission of Preparing those who are unprepared to receive what he has prepared for them And look what he says in verse 13 And we're going rather quickly because this is more of a meditation to prepare us for the testimonies we'll hear But look at verse 13 what is this gracious plan of the Father? It involves rescue. Look at he says. He rescued us from the d- domain of darkness. He rescued us. It has the idea rescue uh, to be rescued from danger, to be freed from danger, to be taken out of a situation of hostility that threatens our good. He rescued us from the very thing that was a threat to us, namely to be a part of the domain of darkness. Some of you have different translations there Some say the domain of darkness Some the realm of darkness Some the authority of darkness If you were to be rather literal In terms of how that term is most often used It would be the authority of darkness But the idea here that is captured Is is really the realm of darkness The sphere of darkness The place of authority that is ruled by darkness It is a place of danger And is a place to be rescued from Because to be a part of that realm is to be outside of the grace of God He'll say later as a matter of fact To be a part of that kingdom is to be a child of wrath Uh, He says that In verse 6 of chapter 3 is because of these things The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience He rescues A people from his own wrath He rescues his people from a place of the the greatest danger Now we looked at this last week When we looked at the covenants again that we come into this world and we come naturally with the corruption of our hearts that incites from God wrath. We see that again in the very opening pages of scripture. We're only six chapters into the Bible and he destroys the whole world by the flood. In chapter 8 he makes a promise to Noah and he says look the heart of man hasn't changed even though all flesh has been destroyed from my sight even though he brought only Noah and his family through he says the heart of man is corrupt from birth. The thoughts and the tensions of their heart are corrupt but I I have made a covenant, and I have made a covenant in which I will not destroy the world again by water. and this covenant then provided the platform through which he could work out the promise of redemption that he made beginning in chapter 3:15, and then was narrowed down to the other covenants that we looked at. The point is is that if it were not for that promise of God, the natural response of a holy God would be to destroy those who are in rebellion to him, those who are in a rebellion kingdom. And so it is to that kingdom that we are born by nature and so we need to be rescued and that is exactly what God did. He rescued his people. He rescued us. He saved us. He delivered us. He took us out of that condition of danger and moved us into a condition of blessing. He rescued his people which is a key theme again in the background of Paul and the language here. He's he's picking up on the idea Of deliverance that would have been very familiar to the Jews The very identity of them as a nation was that they were delivered They were redeemed in the great event of the Exodus Where God put his judgments on Egypt and rescued his people through the blood On the post of their homes, the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb Here it is that he delivered from the bondage in the domain of darkness He rescued As his people Israel were rescued from the bondage of Egypt, so he rescued his people. And just as his people were rescued then, so now by a sovereign act of God, this was a sovereign rescue. It was a sovereign rescue. And to say it is a sovereign rescue is to say simply this, that God did it by his own purpose, for his own purpose, for his own glory, by his own power. He did it. It certainly in their case wasn't because Israel, even that he delivered from Egypt, was worthy. As a matter of fact, that's the reason they needed to put the blood on the post of their home because if they didn't, they would have been destroyed along with the rest of Egypt because they were as guilty as they were. As a matter of fact, that very generation that he delivered out never even came to know the promises. And Hebrews tells us he was angry with that generation for 40 years. Why? Because they always go astray in their heart. So it wasn't because of their worthiness, it was an act of sovereign grace. He told his people before they entered the land in the book of Deuteronomy, I did not choose you because you were the greatest of all the nations, because you were mighty among the nations, because there was some inherent goodness in you among the nations, but I chose you because you were the least of all of the nations. And in choosing you as the least of all the nations, my glory might be magnified. It might be maximized. My grace might be put on display as my power was put on display in your deliverance. So my sovereign love for you is put on display in my choice of you of all of the nations of the earth. He rescued them. He rescued them and he rescued his people. He rescued them from a kingdom that should have been towards destruction, but instead was led to salvation. And he rescued because he has authority to do that. He is the only true potentate. The devil has authority. Here he says it is the domain of darkness. We'll mention that in a moment. But even the devil's authority is subject to the authority of Christ. I've mentioned before, but the reformers had a great statement that the devil is God's devil. He's God's devil. He exists because God ordained that after being created a holy angel, he would fall. That was not by accident. God did not react. God was not taken by surprise. It is a mystery to us. Satan only works within the purview of God's parameters that he has set out for him. When he is finished with him, he will destroy him and all those who are with him. So the fact that God delivers and rescues is a picture of his sovereignty The fact that God put all of the plagues against Egypt was to show that all of the gods that you're trusting in are nothing, that there is only one creator who rules over his creation, and it is the God of Israel. Here it is, the God revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is subject to God's purposes, and when God delivers, he delivers because he's able to do that. As a matter of fact, we won't go in this, but he'll make this clear as he goes on. He says in verse 16 of chapter one, all things were created Uh, In Christ through Christ and he says whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities that word authority is our same word All things have been created through him and for him. He is the creator of all authorities He says over in chapter 2 verse 10 and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority chapter verse 16 He says similarly There's no one to act as your judge in regard to food or drink a festival or a new moon. These things are a shadow. He says up in verse 15, he disarmed because he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So there is an authority that Satan has. It is an authority that is subject to the authority of Christ. Notice, secondly here, just briefly. It is a personal rescue. It is a sovereign rescue. It is a personal rescue. God sovereignly rescues his people that he does so in the most intimate way. In the most intimate way. It is not detached. It is not merely mechanical. It is not simply a doctrine that is proclaimed and we believe in it in some kind of cold sense. He delivered how? As the father. Now notice in verse 12, we give thanks to the father. Now he is the father as in terms of his person within the godhead his relation within the godhead but he is the father also to those whom he rescues because he brings them into this intimate familial relationship as he has with his son he is a father in the most intimate way he is the father in the most personal way he is the father who by name knew those he would rescue he is the father who by name called them to the son He's a father, it's an intimate rescue, it's a personal rescue, it's a loving rescue, it's a sovereign rescue, it speaks of the most wonderful relationship that salvation brings us into. Let's note here then again, I've mentioned it, but what does he rescue us from? Well, I want to consider this even a bit more. He rescues us from, as I mentioned, the authority of darkness or the power of darkness, the realm of darkness is probably a, a better way to put it. It's translated kingdom of darkness in some to, to provide a, a parallel with what he says in the kingdom of the sun, but it's two, two different words. Usually it's here, it's probably best the realm again of darkness, the place of authority. So what does it mean then to be in darkness? Well, it means just that. It means to be devoid of the light. It means to be in a place that is characterized by all that the term darkness characterized, not knowing where you're going. And in fact, those who are in the kingdom of darkness do not realize that they are in the kingdom of darkness. It's unbeknownst to those who are in it, who are citizens of that kingdom. You would not go to the average person outside of Christ and say, what citizen are you of? What spiritual kingdom are you a part of? And they would not say, I am a part of the the spiritual kingdom of darkness. I am under the realm of darkness. I'm under the domain of darkness. They wouldn't say that at all. They would say that they are the ones who are free. But to be ruled by darkness, whether one thinks they are free or not, is to be in bondage. It is to be in bondage. And those who are in the kingdom of darkness, which is every one of us even who know Christ before him, we were held captive by Satan to do his will, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25. Held captive. Held captive. Let's consider this, just again very briefly. Our culture is under darkness. It tells us this, that freedom, the true freedom, is to do whatever your heart desires. That's how we generally think of freedom. We don't think of being enslaved, right? We don't really think of getting to sin any way we want to. The world doesn't, of being enslaved, of being under bondage. As a matter of fact, we hear just the exact opposite message. Paul says, whomever you present yourself to for obedience, to that one you are enslaved Verse 16 of Romans 6, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're a slave of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? In other words, you're obeying something, and outside of Christ, there's obeying the authority that is described here as the realm of darkness. And this realm of darkness switches the message around. We read it earlier that uh, it's a demonic message that promises freedom, but in fact is a lie. We believe sometimes that freedom is to do whatever we want to do, but that's not true freedom. That's to be enslaved to sin. It's not produced a world marked by joy and peace and sacrifice and love. What does it produce? What is our culture just do a, a scan of whatever movie titles might come up on whatever site you look at, and what are you gonna see? Movies that mark out beauty? Movies that mark out Holiness? Music that marks out self-sacrifice, love, kindness, gentleness, patience. No, you see depression, you see pride, you see violence, you see selfishness. That's what the kingdom of darkness is marked by because it enslaves those whom it rules over. It, in fact, is sometimes those who speak the most loudly of that desire for freedom Who are merely trying to cover over the most desperately the convicting conscience within them Within this kingdom, there is a constant searching for something to bring comfort, to bring meaning, to bring purpose Matter of fact, that is why uh, That is why People so easily attach on to some of these ideologies that we see floating around our culture Because it gives them a sense of virtue It gives them a sense of purpose. It gives them a sense of meaning in life. It doesn't have to logically make sense. It doesn't have to produce good things, but it it gives them a sense of belonging, of of working for something that gives them a sense, again, of virtue. And if you don't have God, if that's not the supply of virtue, if that's not a, a transcendent standard that we are to conform to, if that's not something that is true and eternal, then we have to replace it with something And there's no lack of suggestions in the kingdom of darkness. And what does it mean then to say that he has authority? To say that there is this this authority in the darkness. It is a personal authority. Now he doesn't mention it here. He mentions it in several other places. That this is a a realm. It is a, a sphere of authority ruled by none other than Satan himself. Again, who we meet in the very opening pages of scripture. He's called the God of this world. The God who blinds the minds of the unbelieving The ruler of this world Jesus himself calls him He's the one that Jesus himself acknowledges Has a sway and authority over the kingdoms If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 4 and other of the synoptics Where, where the, the, the devil came and presented to him And showed him all the glories of the kingdom of the, of the world Of the kingdoms of the world And he offered and he says I'll give this to you Jesus did not say Hey I rebuke you Satan Because these aren't yours to give They were his to give he says the conditions on which you want to give these to me and defy my father, that was the sin. He stayed obedient to his father, but my point I'm simply making is that those were Satan's to give. He is called the God of this world. Now, Paul doesn't mention that here, but that clearly is, would have been in the mind even of his hearers. Here he emphasizes the authority of that kingdom, the realm of that kingdom that offered influence over those who are in it. Now, how does he exercise this authority? How does it work? Well, essentially in this, it's a kingdom of manipulation. It's a kingdom that is designed of darkness to appeal to our affections, to our lust, to our desires, to what is in our own mind and in our own hearts. It is to appeal to everything in us that does not, is not in subjection to Christ, that is not in submission to him. There's always some answer for the world's supplies for the seeking heart. and as a matter of fact, Paul is going to address those. I'm, again, just gonna mention these. He says in verse eight of chapter two, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. There are no end of philosophies, of ideologies, of other ways of understanding the world and of worldviews out there that one can hold on to to find meaning, to find purpose. To find some kind of framework by which we should live our lives. There's all kinds of philosophies out there. There's versions of religion in which offer a kind of self-salvation and a self-sanctification and a, and a self-saving. He mentions those in verse 18 of chapter 2. Let no one keep defrauding, defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Taking a stand on visions he's seen without inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. He says, if you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why are you still living in the world and submitting yourself to decrees as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? And if we remember our reading from 1 Timothy this morning, he says, is the exact character of the doctrine of demons. It does not lay hold of the goodness and the righteousness that is in Christ. There's other ways that the domain of darkness tries to answer it and find purpose and meaning. He mentions those in chapter three. What is the character of those things upon earth? He says, It's immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. He later says it's anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech. That's the character of the kingdom of darkness. He appeals to our affections. It does. It tries to influence our wants, our desires. He shapes our thinking by appealing to the natural corruption and disordered desires of our heart. It's the garden, isn't it? It's the garden again. So when, when Eve looked at the tree, she saw it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was able to make one wise. Guess what? It was all of those things. It was beautiful. It was nutritious. And it would bring them into an experience of knowledge that they had not, did not have before, but it required one thing, to turn your back on God, and to take it for yourself. That's what it means to be in the domain of darkness. And this, beloved, is what God rescues us from. It's what he rescues us from. And you could say, maybe some, how do I know if I'm in the domain of darkness? I don't think I'm in the domain of darkness. I'm a pretty good person, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's simply this Do you see yourself in, as in yourself unrighteous, whose only hope is the righteousness of Christ? Do you see in the world those things that dishonor God, and your only hope is to suffer what you may in this world to lay hold of the kingdom of glory which he offers in Christ? Do you day in and day out seek to know him? Though faltering, though weakly at times, trusting in his word. That's what it means to be rescued and that's what he turns to next. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivered us from a place of deception, a place of lies, a place of destruction. But he delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved son, The idea of the term here is to be moved from one place or state or condition or whatever to another, to be changed, to be moved. It's the kingdom of his beloved son, the son of his love, some of your translations may say. It is to be brought into that sphere again of the father's own eternal love for his son. Where do you get that? Well, all over, but let me just give you one passage in John chapter 3. Don't turn there. But in John chapter 3, he says this. Speaking of Christ, this is the speech of John the Baptist. He says this, For he whom God has sent, speaking there of Christ, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Listen, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Why does the Son have this kingdom? Because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. If you are a part of this kingdom, what are you part of? You are a part of a kingdom and a sphere ruled by the Son whom the Father loves and has brought you to, into fellowship with. It's to be brought into this fellowship. It is to be brought into the reality of the Father's love for the Son. It is a kingdom. It is under the everlasting rule of Christ. Now this is interesting Because here it is, the kingdom of the beloved son, but it is a kingdom ruled by the father and the son. Matter of fact, at many other places in scripture, it's called the kingdom of the son, the kingdom of the beloved son. And it is one that the father delighted to give him. And so let's just look at the second part here, and it'll be a bit more quickly. Then the surpassing glory of the son The surpassing glory of the Son. The first was the sovereign purpose of the Father. Here is the surpassing glory of the Son, which he segues into. The Son in whose kingdom we are placed into. The Son who shares the glory of the Father. You'll remember some of the statements of Jesus in his prayer to the Father. The glory I shared with you before the world was, before the foundation of the world Philippians 2, he existed in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3, through whom the ages were created. He is the effulgence, the glory, the radiance of the Son is of the Father and of His glory. We're transferred into the kingdom of the Son, whom He shares in glory and honor with the Father. And again, this is where He's going to go next. It's the glory of the son and that son's kingdom through whom and for whom all things were created let me simply state this and you and we can meditate on this alone why does anything exist why did God create in the first place he created in the first place that he might give a kingdom to his son that's why that's why Anybody exists. That's why this world exists Is that he would give a kingdom And a people to his son Whom he loves and is loved eternally That's why through the son He created all things Listen, all things have been created Through him and for him This world exists because of Christ It exists for Christ It exists through Christ It exists because of Christ It exists to glorify Christ That in the glory of Christ The father is glorified That's why anything exists And it's the kingdom that God has brought us into That eternal purpose of the father To share in this kingdom We've been transferred to the kingdom Of his beloved son It's both the kingdom of the father and the son Let's just mention briefly Remember he teaches us to pray Father hallowed be your name Your kingdom come Luke 22, he says, I grant you a kingdom just as my father has granted me a kingdom. I grant to you, that's our participation in this kingdom by the sovereign grace of God. It's a kingdom that scripture tells us the son, having received it from the father, will at the end of the age offer it back up to the father that God might be all in all. First Corinthians 15. And it's a kingdom that we have by grace with the wonderful and delightful reality of the forgiveness of our sin. And look at that, and we'll just, again, very briefly. It's a kingdom in whom we have of his beloved Son, and it is in whom, that is the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin. Paul will use the same phrase, but add this. He says, In whom we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. Paul will talk about that later in chapter two and that's exactly what we are celebrating this morning. As a matter of fact, he'll, he'll do it in the language of the signs that God gave of the two great covenants, circumcision and baptism. He says, In him, in verse 10 of chapter 2, you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. We read that. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having forgiven us all our transgressions in Christ, all our transgressions in the past, all our transgressions we struggle with in the present, all our transgressions in the future, until that great day when he fulfills his promise and we will stand before him in his presence, holy and blameless with great joy. He's forgiven us all of our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of death, debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, he's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That again is how he qualified us. Baptism is a a celebration. There he's referring to the baptism of the Spirit that was promised by Christ. That baptism of the Spirit that was the blessing of the new covenant wherein we are brought into union with Christ his righteousness is our righteousness his standing with God is our standing with God in him his accomplishment of salvation is a salvation extended to us it's in him we stand blameless it's in him we stand accepted by the father it's in him we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light it's through his accomplishment And it's through his accomplishment You might read that And wonder what he's saying here Let me briefly You were in him, circumcised, that is to say that he's putting the language, in the language of circumcision, the death of Christ, saying that in the flesh, Christ was put to death. He was cut off from the living when he offered himself as an atonement for sin. And in doing that, our body of sin was also put away with. His death became our death. His resurrection became our resurrection. His life is our life. His inheritance is what we receive by grace As a matter of fact, he puts it this way in chapter 3 That he says, we have been raised up with Christ Keep seeking the things above He says, you have died, in verse 3 And your life is hidden with Christ in God When Christ, who is our life, is revealed Then you also will be revealed with him in glory He is our life He is our hope He is our joy This is the kingdom that we have been placed into. If you know Christ, every single sin has been forgiven. You are no longer under the domain of darkness, but we have been brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son where we who deserve wrath will know nothing ever but mercy, kindness, forgiveness, blessing, And what other language could he use of the glory of being brought into this kingdom but in the book of Ephesians he says this that it is so that he might lavish the riches of his kindness on us forever in Christ. God will for eternity for those who are in the kingdom of his beloved son ever be discovering to us new ways in which he loves us and wants to show kindness to us. Again, because it is the very love with which he loves his son. And if you're in Christ that's what's held out before us. That's what we long to know more of. That's what we seek from Him. There's the place of meaning. There's the place of purpose. There's the place of grace, the place of comfort, the place of mercy. If you're outside of Christ, you have none of those things. None of them. If you are in Christ, you have all of them because of grace. Well, there is so much more to say, but it is these testimonies this morning that will declare that grace. Each one of these is an individual with an eternal soul, as we all have, who's been rescued and they're declaring that rescue. They have been saved through the sacrifice of Christ and his death and in his resurrection and they are declaring their faith in him. They are declaring their faith not merely in one who lived but one who lives and one who is returning. They're declaring their present possession of a relationship with God through Christ. They're declaring their hope in Christ. They're declaring their confidence in Christ. They're declaring that Christ is the very center and orb of everything about their life. And though they falter, they run back to Christ so that he might restore into them that faith that presses on, that continues on in our weakness but his strength. And so remember that if you again are here this morning and you are outside of Christ, consider the words of Paul and know that you too can be a part of that kingdom through repentance, through faith in Christ, embracing him. Here's a wonderful promise. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And no one who comes to me, he says, in another place will I cast out. For it is the very will of the Father that he would receive all who come to him in faith. Embracing his mercy, taking his life in exchange for our own. Let me pray, and then John will come up and lead in some music, and we'll prepare to hear these testimonies. Father, thank you for the great testimony of your sovereign work in Christ. We thank you. It is indeed a domain and sphere of darkness that we are born into, but we praise you, and we praise you alone, and we praise you who is rescued. A people for yourself That we might give you glory That we might know your grace That we might forever be A people for your own possession Thank you Thank you Father Thank you our Lord Jesus Christ For accomplishing it for us Ever increase our hope Pick us up when we stumble Remind us of this hope when we lose it Keep us always ever seeking you In your word and we look to you for this grace. May we delight in the testimony of it this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen.